Of the belligerents who fought in World War I, Germany and the Austro-Hungarian and Ottoman empires on the side of the Central Powers, and Britain, France, and Russia on the side of the Triple Entente, we tend to forget that there were other power players who were involved as well. Let's not forget that it was a world war, meaning that several countries, whether willingly or unwillingly, were dragged into the conflict at some point. One oft-forgotten key player was Italy, who, in this skirmish, fought on the side of the Triple Entente, and who would single-handedly change the course of the war. I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to a special Memorial Day episode of the History Loves Company podcast on the Second Battle of Piave, one of the most lethal battles of World War I. By 1918, the conflict known at the time as the Great War had entered its fourth year. In October of the previous year, 1917, Russia had dropped out of the Triple Entente after the bloody revolution that brought an end to imperial rule in that country in favor of a communist state. Russian withdrawal meant a huge burden being lifted off the shoulders of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, who had previously devoted much of its military resources to protecting its border with Russia along the Eastern Front. Now Austria-Hungary could command its attention elsewhere, and they, along with Germany, looked to the southern, that is, Alpine front, along the Italian border to start a new offensive. Now it's important to note that this offensive would not be the first time that the Austro-Hungarians and Italians had squared off in the conflict. In the autumn of 1917, the former, again with the help of the Germans, had defeated the latter's forces in the Battle of Caporetto. This battle saw the Central Powers break through the Italian front lines, causing them to retreat and scatter. The use of such tactics as stormtroopers, infiltration, and poison gas by the Germans caused virtual collapse of the Italian Second Army, resulting in some 13,000 dead. Though the British and French sent reinforcements to aid the Italians following the defeat at Caporetto, this backup was soon redeployed to the Western Front with the start of the German Spring Offensive in March of 1918. Meanwhile, a new change in command for the Austro-Hungarians meant that the Italian forces faced a new threat, this time in the form of Chief of Staff Otto Arz von Stauzenburg, who wished to put an end to Italian meddling once and for all. His objective was to place several northern Italian cities, including Verona and Venice, under Austro-Hungarian control. This would force the Italians into signing an armistice that would single-handedly drive them out of the war, thus allowing the central powers unfettered access to these strategically located prizes. The only problem was that Strausenburg and his group of army commanders couldn't agree on the location in which to attack the Italians. One Konrad von Heutzendorf opted for the South Tyrolean Alps in northeastern Italy. Another, Svetozar Borovic von Boina, suggested to the city of Vicenza, also in northeastern Italy. Strausenburg himself preferred an attack on the Italian Western Front, the so-named Giudicarie sector, leading to the city of Brescia in north-central Italy, and it was here that they would launch their offensive. By February of 1918, Austro-Hungarian forces were ready to be mobilized in northern Italy in preparation for the attack. Using tactics developed by their German allies, they'd lead an all-out frontal assault on the Italians, which would employ their entire reserves. Unbeknownst to them, however, Italian forces were concocting a plan of their own. Studying the defeat at Caporetto, General Armando Diaz of the Italian army concluded that Italian defenses had been too rigid and immobile to be effective. Thus it was deemed that trench warfare, the signature tactic of the Great War, would be nixed in favor of a mobile defense system that would allow them to better defend against encroaching enemy forces. This new scheme called for smaller units that could move more freely between strong points, or key locations in defensive positions, decide independently whether to to counterattack as well as call for artillery support if necessary. In addition, 13 divisions, backed by some 6,000 trucks, would be organized into a backup reserve, ready to be deployed wherever they'd be needed. Four months later, both sides were ready to face off. 
Just days before the offensive, General Diaz, through intel, discovered when and where the attack was to take place. 3 a.m. on June 15th in the vicinity of Trieste, in what was then Austro-Hungarian jurisdiction, but now part of northeastern Italy. So it was that he deployed Italian artillery to the specific point on their front lines, and at 2.30 a.m. that day, opened fire on the Austro-Hungarian forces who were stationed there. The ensuing barrage, in some places, stalled or even halted the enemy advance altogether. This, however, didn't deter some Austro-Hungarian soldiers, who still went ahead with the attack as planned. It was Borovich who launched the first assault, beginning, as Diaz had discovered, in the region of Trieste before moving south along the Adriatic Sea coast, in a devastating sweep before stopping in the middle of the Piave River, just north of Venice. There the enemy crossed the river, despite being faced with ever-increasing Italian resistance. Soon, however, the artillery fire became so intense that Borovich had no choice but to order a retreat. So it was that the Italians had won the day, but they were by no means finished yet. Over the ensuing eight days, the Austro-Hungarians resumed their assault with renewed vigor, though this did nothing to weaken the Italian forces' defenses. In several instances, many bridges spanning the river were deliberately destroyed so that the enemy couldn't receive supplies or reinforcements. Also, due to inclement weather, the Piave swelled to nearly twice its size, stranding a great number of Austro-Hungarian units on its western banks, exposing them, like sitting ducks, to Italian artillery fire. Still more enemy troops attempted to ford or swim the river to the opposite, eastern bank banks, though many drowned as a result. To add insult to injury, on June 19th, four days into the battle, Diaz ordered a counterattack on the Austro-Hungarians' rear flanks, inflicting some of the heaviest casualties of the entire skirmish. Meanwhile, over on the Asiago Plateau to the west, Konrad von Heutzendorf ordered an attack along the Italian front lines in the hopes of capturing the city of Vicenza. While this enemy force did, in fact, gain some headway, they were ultimately stopped in their tracks by yet another barrage of Italian resistance. Naturally, it wasn't long before Heutzendorf called a retreat, of which Borovich was especially critical, with the latter nevertheless opting to continue with the assault over the next several days, though without sending in reinforcements. But by June 20th, it appeared to the Austro-Hungarians that all their attempts at taking Italy had proven in vain. On that same day, the Emperor Charles IV, known in the German-speaking world as Karl IV, officially ordered a retreat. Three days later, June 23rd, the Italians recaptured all their lost territory and celebrated on the southern banks of the Piave River. The battle at last had been won. Following the Italian victory at the Battle of Piave, the Triple Entente, namely France, urged General Diaz to pursue the retreating Austro-Hungarians in an attempt at breaking their defenses. Perhaps not surprisingly, he refused. After all, his men had fought long and hard to secure their front lines, and to stoke the flames of conflict once again would likely prove a suicide attempt on behalf of the battle-weary troops. As for Austria-Hungary, they naturally never again attempted to take control of Italy. Indeed, their failure at the Piave River was the final blow to their military campaigns. Not only did it deal them a crushing strike to their morale and cohesion, but it also signaled the beginning of the end of the famed dual monarchy, which crumbled altogether after October 28th that same year, when they once again were crushed by the Italians in the Battle of Vittorio Veneto. Just two weeks later, the Great War itself came to an end when the armistice was famously signed on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918, a.k.a. November 11th, what we now know as Veterans Day. There are many such stories of courage and fortitude against insurmountable odds from World War I, 
but that of the Battle of Piave has to be one of the greatest underdog stories, not just from this conflict, but from the whole of military history in general. Even before the war broke out in 1914, the Italian army had a reputation, whether warranted or not is another story, for not being the best in battle, always quick to retreat and or surrender. But the enduring tale of the Battle of Piave does away with any such pretenses, for it reveals the strength of a people quick to defend their beloved homeland from the threat of enemy-slash-outside invasion. Ask any Italian citizen today about it, and it's all they can do to keep from swelling with pride, and in my opinion, rightfully so. Grazie mille for listening to this special Memorial Day episode of the History Loves Company podcast. I'd like to wish all my fellow American listeners a very beautiful and blessed holiday. While it's considered the first official day of the summer holiday, it's important to remember the reason why we celebrate it, to honor and remember those who made the ultimate sacrifice for our freedom and way of life. That being said, whether you're firing up the grills that day or enjoying a simple meal with friends and or loved ones, set aside your thoughts for these brave men and women, lest we forget. Join me again next week as we take a comprehensive look at the history of one of the world's most beloved beverages, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time, and once again, happy Memorial Day, everyone. <laughs>